Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, if you would, turn in your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 11. We'll be looking at verses 23 to 31. And as you are turning there, we'll be dismissing our children to our children's class. So if you are participating in that class, you can make your way back to uh, the room back there in the back corner. And our volunteer leaders will be there ready to greet you and teach you the truth of God's Word in that class as well. Uh, But as I mentioned, we are in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 through 31, as we continue to make our way uh, through this letter of the New Testament. And so uh, I will read our passage for us this morning, and then we will pause as we do every week and take a moment to uh, pray and ask for the Lord's help as we come before the truth and authority of his word. So Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, For he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king. For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood. So that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians when they attempted to do the same were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Let's pray together. Father, we just want to pause and acknowledge that what's happening here this morning for uh, just the fact that we are able to gather as your people to sing together, to hear your word read aloud together, to pray together, to be under the truth of your word together is all a privilege that we do not deserve. And so, Father, we come into this room acknowledging that we are sinners who need a Savior. And so, Father, we come here pleading with you and asking you to help us to fix our eyes on Jesus this morning. Father, we are thankful for the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, for his perfect righteous life that stands in our place, for his death where the the full penalty and weight and justice for our sin was served so that we would not have to face your wrath and condemnation. And it's because of his work, Father, that you have graciously sent your spirit to dwell in us. And so, Father, we ask you to do the very thing you have promised to do. It's the same thing we ask every single week. We ask that you would, by the power of your spirit, through the truth of your word, be at work in each of us this morning, transforming us, conforming us, and making us more and more like Jesus Christ. Father, for this passage in particular this morning, I pray that you would Uh, by that same power of your spirit, by that truth of your word, that you would lift our eyes above the clouds of these worldly values that we're so often constrained to and help us to look on eternal things. Father, I pray that you would move our feet off the the, uh, shaking foundation of this world into the unshakable, rock-solid foundation of your sovereign, gracious mercy toward us. Father, only your word, only your spirit can do those things in our hearts. We cannot do these things in our own strength. And so we ask you to do 
above and beyond what we could ever ask or think for the glory of your name this morning. Pray that you would guide my words, that you would protect all of us from being led astray. And we plead with you to lead us into all truth for the good of your people and for the glory of your name. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the greatest difficulties in pursuing obedience to God are the lingering what-if questions. The what-if questions in our life place roadblocks in the path of what God is calling us to as his people. What-if questions like, what if my family thinks I'm strange? What if my neighbors stop inviting me to get-togethers? What if co-workers mock my faith? What if I could face the loss of my job? What if I had to give up things that I really enjoy? What if I had to leave behind the uh, comforts of this life? And of course, in other cultures, we don't experience this truly in American culture, but in other cultures, the what if questions are even more radical. What if my entire family disowns me? What if I'm imprisoned? What if I'm sentenced to death? What if I might face torture? Now, each of these what-if questions are clearly different extremes of these kinds of questions, but nevertheless, each of them can uniquely hinder our pursuit of glorifying Christ through radical obedience to what he has called us to. And remember, this is the exact issue that was plaguing the uh, Hebrew church to whom this letter was written. They were struggling with these what-if questions because we saw earlier in chapter 10 that they had already historically faced significant persecution, that some of them were thrown in prison and then others of them went to minister to those who were in prison. And because they associated themselves with that group of people, it says that all of their possessions were plundered, but they remained faithful in those days, and now they are in later days. This is some years later, and the author of Hebrews, word has come to him that this Hebrew church is struggling, and they're beginning to doubt whether they can endure or not, whether they can keep going. They're once again facing mockery and tribulation and persecution and hardship, and they're weary, and they're tired, and they're exhausted, and they're asking these what-if questions. What if I just went back to the Judaism we had before when we didn't face these kinds of hardships? It was, life was easier then. What if we just abandon it? What if this is the rest of our lives and to the day we die, we're gonna be mocked and scorned and uh, set apart from the rest of society in a way that's just too hard to keep going? And that's why the author of Hebrews wrote this letter to, to lift their eyes up, to fix their eyes on Jesus Christ. It's why these first 10 chapters of Hebrews has been all about Jesus and the glories of his name, how he's greater and more superior than the angels and more superior than Moses and the law and the sacrificial system, how he is the final, complete, sufficient sacrifice that stands in our place, how he is our great high priest that will never fail us. It's why the author of Hebrews says what he says at the end of chapter 11. After recounting to them for 10 chapters about the glory of Christ and what he has accomplished for them, when he finally comes to the end of that section in chapter 10, and he says to them in 1035, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance. You have need of endurance. Now I want to recognize for a moment what could at surface seem like, if you think about it for a moment, could seem like an illogical way the author of Hebrews is addressing these what-if questions that these Hebrew believers, that even us in our own lives, are having to face. 
Because what I want you to notice is he addresses their struggles, as he provides these examples to them in chapter 11, the example he showed us of Abraham last week and the hardships he faced and how he remained faithful even in the midst of those. And we're going to see the hardships that Moses' parents faced and Moses faced and others faced, and yet they remained faithful. What's interesting is that he knows these Hebrew Christians are struggling with these kinds of what-if questions, but yet he never hints to them that these hardships, that these sufferings might only be temporary. You see, I think if we're being honest, that's our temptation today when things get difficult. When things get difficult for our brother or sister in Christ and we're trying to encourage them, we're trying to help them get through those hard days, fight through these what-if questions that they might be facing and whether they can endure in their faith, I think often we revert to something like this. Look, I know this is a tough season, but it's just a season. You'll get through it. It's not always going to be like this. And of course that's our hope. Of course that's our prayer, right? We don't want people to struggle for the rest of our lives, but, but that's, what I want you to notice is that that's not the counsel, that's not the theology, that's not the foundation that the author of Hebrews is seeking to place under our feet. Because when we do that, what we are potentially doing is placing our hope in circumstances, Your circumstance might change, then it'll be easier to follow Jesus. Well, here's the reality it, it might not change. It may not work out. It may not change today, tomorrow, 10 years from now, or three decades from now. And so we need something to hang on to. Even when our circumstances don't change, when the hardship doesn't go away, what are we going to cling to in those days and in those moments? And that's why the author of Hebrews does not sugarcoat these things with some kind of easy, simple examples that he gives us in chapter 11. Instead, he gives us examples of men who suffered and endured, and their hope did not depend on their circumstances. They found their anchor in something that was unshakable and eternal. And so the author of Hebrews wants us to fix our gaze on Jesus Christ this morning, on the eternal, unshakable promises of God, on the character of God, without holding out any false hope that our circumstances might change. That's why he showed us last week in the life of Abraham, right? This, this pillar of faith that we look to as an example of faith. He spent his entire life following God, living in temporary tents, and never found a permanent home. That wasn't a season for Abraham. That was his life. But he clung to the promises of God. And it's why the author of Hebrews is going to show us today that faith in our good and sovereign God is what allows us to endure. That's what allows us to endure. Not hoping for a change of circumstances. It's not wrong to hope for a change of circumstances, brothers and sisters. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying our confidence can't be in that ultimately. Our confidence has to be in the unshakable promises of God in eternal things. And so what we're going to see this morning is that that kind of faith frees us to pursue Christ with radical obedience. And there there are four reasons that uh, the author of Hebrews gives us in this text. And we're going to just go through these one at a time. But let me list them now, and then we'll tackle them one at a time. Number one, faith frees us from fear of man. Faith frees us from fear of man. Number two, Faith gives us an eternal perspective. It gives us an eternal perspective. Number three, faith looks to the unseen. And number four, faith sets apart the people of God. 
But let's look at this first principle, that faith frees us from fear of man. Look there with me again at verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, just here, right off the top, I just want to clarify something because if we don't read carefully, we can misunderstand whose faith is being commended in verse 23 because it says, by faith, Moses. But notice with me, it's not the faith of Moses in verse 23 that's being commended. It's the faith of his parents that's being commended. Do you see that there? It says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden. Somebody did that for him. His parents hid him. It was the faith of his parents that's being commended there in verse 23. And it's his parents that hid him for three months. Now, as we've done throughout the book of Hebrews, because it references a lot of Old Testament passages, I never want to assume that everyone knows what's being talked about when it references these historic events that are given to us in the Old Testament. So let's just take a moment and be sure we all together know what the author is talking about happening here in verse 23. So as we come to the end of Genesis, uh, we've, we've gone through the life of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob uh, uh, if you grew up in church, you've heard the story about Joseph, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, who uh, his brothers betrayed him, sent him off to Egypt ultimately. Lots of things happen in Joseph's life. He ends up being in charge of Egypt, essentially second in command. And he's there. And uh, he, it's because of him, because God sends him ahead of his brothers, that he's able to save many people alive. And his brothers come, which at that point is the nation of Israel, that small group of 70 that come into Egypt. Joseph is there. He forgives them. He provides for his family by providing food for them. So Genesis concludes there. Then Exodus picks up a few hundred years after that. And so that group of 70 or so who goes into Egypt, stays put. They have children. Their families grow. They grow exponentially over a few hundred years. And there comes a point where at the beginning of Exodus, we're told that a Pharaoh came into power that did not know Joseph. He forgot about him. He forgot about what he had accomplished uh, for Egypt by saving them from the famine. And so the children of Israel, who are the Hebrews at this point, that they are just massive in numbers. And the uh, Pharaoh of Egypt is threatened by this group of people. And so he enslaves them. They are put into slavery for hundreds of years. And while they are enslaved, their population growth doesn't slow down. So now Pharaoh has to go to plan B. He's like, well, that didn't work. And so he has to try something else. And so what he decides to do is to uh, eventually he has to decide to call on his people, meaning everyone, call on his people, the Egyptians, to kill every male who is born to the Israeli people. Every single one. The, the female babies, they would let live, but they were going to kill all the male children. That was the plan. And that is the Egypt into which Moses is born. And so when it says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, it's because by the command of Pharaoh, he should have been put to death. He, he should have been, what he specifically commanded them to do is to throw them into the Nile. But his parents, of course, refused to do that. They sought to preserve his life. And so it says that by faith, they hid him for three months. Now, why was this an act of faith? Well, at one level, what's clear is that it wasn't just Moses' life that would have been threatened, but when they disobey, their lives are threatened. You don't disobey Pharaoh, by the way, right? You disobey him, you die. So their lives were threatened. They were putting the lives of their entire family in jeopardy. We know that Moses had at least two older siblings, Aaron and Miriam. They would have been put at danger. And so uh, Moses' parents had to make difficult decisions, right? We hide Moses and we're found out we may all die. Or should we try to save the lives of the children we already have and hand Moses off to the Egyptians, which, of course, 
they don't do. And so they faithfully hid Moses and protect him. Now, now, why did they do that? Verse 23 gives us two reasons. You see that there, the second half of verse 23, reason number one, because they saw that the child was beautiful. Now, that's a strange statement, isn't it? Right? It's a good thing Moses was a good-looking baby, right? No, no. Right? So what, what in the world is the author of Hebrews talking about when he says this and verse 23 was actually a description that comes up a few different times in the scripture. And I think if we look at the different places, we can come to understand uh, what it means when it says, because the child was beautiful. Well, well, first, in Exodus itself, when it's referring to the child's appearance, to Moses' appearance in Exodus 2, it says that she saw that he was a fine child, which Really, there in the original language carries more of the sense of good, a uh, good child. But then, interestingly, in Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, when he's recounting God's faithfulness throughout the history of the people of Israel, in Acts chapter 7, verse 20, this is what Stephen says about Moses. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. He's beautiful in God's sight. So we don't know exactly what that means, what all is caught up in that, but there's something about this child that God wanted to set apart and protect. And so he worked through his parents. He gave them faith to see that that beauty, not, I don't think, physical beauty, but this beauty of this child that was given to them to protect him and to guard him from the evil of Pharaoh. So that's reason number one, that, that God seemed to reveal to them that they needed to do this in some strange, mysterious way. But the, the second reason is the one I really want us to focus on. When he was born, he was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. They were not afraid. They were not afraid of what Pharaoh and his army could do to them. They weren't afraid of the Egyptians and the fact that they could come and find them and slaughter their entire family. They were not afraid of that because they trusted God's goodness to them. They refused to give in to fear of man and hand their child over to be slaughtered and thrown into the Nile. And they certainly struggle with the what if questions that you or I would struggle with, right? What if they find him? What if all of us die? What good have we done, right? What if our other, what if they let us live and they kill Aaron and Miriam and Moses? Now it's our fault that all of our children died, right? All of these what if questions plague them. But in the end, the only question that matters is what has God called us to do? And what God has called us to do in that scenario is protect life and protect this beautiful child that God had given them. And so they were freed by faith. By faith, they were freed from fear of man. Look, this is a theme throughout Scripture that faith gives us the freedom to pursue obedience to God without having to worry about the consequences that man may bring upon us. In fact, the author of Hebrews himself quotes this in Hebrews 13, but uh, quotes Old Testament references to this. So he quotes Psalm 118, he quotes Psalm 56. This is what Psalm 118.6 says. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Psalm 56, 4, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? And it's those two psalms that then the author of Hebrews pulls into Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, when he says, keep your life free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you, so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now, what can man do to you? 
Well, there's a lot of things that man can do to us. Humanity can make us suffer in incredible ways. Man can torture us. Man can kill us. But when we're talking about eternity, when we have an eternal perspective, when our minds are set on things above, when we think in that way, there is nothing that man can do to us. He can take our life. He cannot take our eternity. Which is why Jesus says to us in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, this is the perspective that Moses' parents had. They did not fear man. They feared God. And so the author of Hebrews holds up Moses' parents as an example of those who endured obediently through faith because their faith freed them from fear of man. They were more concerned about obeying God and preserving Moses' life than any threat Pharaoh could throw their way. And so the only thing that frees us from fear of man and our innate captivity to these what-if questions is to create within our hearts, by God's grace, a healthy fear of God that overcomes any fear of man. And to live our lives within eternal perspective. And so that brings us to this second principle of how, we, of how faith helps us pursue radical obedience. Number two, faith gives us an eternal perspective. Faith gives us an eternal perspective. Look there with me, beginning of verse 24 of chapter 11. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So essentially what uh, verses 24 through 26 are referring to, it says when he was grown up. So there came a point uh, after three months of hiding him when Moses just was too big to really be able to hide anymore. They were going to give, give away their home, essentially. And so they had to kind of go to the next stage of the plan. And so uh, what they did is they created this, uh, uh, they weaved together this waterproof basket. They placed uh, uh, baby Moses in the basket and they uh, placed him, hopefully, into the safety of these reeds in the river. And they kind of put Moses' sister out there to try and keep an eye on him. This, this is a desperate, just a desperate attempt to try and keep him alive. And while Moses was being hidden there, Pharaoh's daughter was uh, nearby. We see this in Exodus chapter 2, nearby observing what's uh, uh, happening. She sees this basket and uh, probably heard the baby in the basket and has compassion for this baby, which in and of itself is a supernatural, miraculous act of God. Because remember, all the male babies of the Jews were supposed to have been slaughtered. But she sees him. She wants to care for him. Moses' sister comes and says, do you want me to help you care for this child? And uh, uh, through God's, again, just sovereign providence, the Pharaoh's daughter says, well, you can take the child, allow him to continue to nurse with his mother, but when he's done nursing, bring him back to me, which is what happens. So he gets to be with his mom for a little while, but eventually when he comes of a certain age, he's given back to Pharaoh's daughter. And so Moses lives his entire uh, life as a child, young adult, as the grandson a Pharaoh. It's who he is. So verse 24, when it says, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, it says he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That's because that's who he was. The grandson of Pharaoh. But yet, Exodus makes clear that he was well aware that he was actually a 
member of Israel, that he was a Hebrew, that he was a Jew. He apparently knew that because as Exodus makes clear, then Exodus chapter 2, verse 11, it says, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. He's well aware that He's part of them. He's been raised in this privilege, right, of being the son of Pharaoh's daughter, being the grandson of Pharaoh, but yet he knows, he knows that that's who he really is. And so he never lost that connection. And so he goes out to look on his people. And when he goes out to look on his people, he sees this cruel Egyptian slave master essentially beating up on one of the Hebrew people who he sees as his people. In fact, Exodus 2 again repeats that line. One of his people was being beaten. And so when Moses sees that, he decides he has to take action. He has to take action. And so he thinks in secret. He goes and he uh, uh, takes this Egyptian man, this cruel slave master, and he actually kills him. He kills this Egyptian slave master. And in that moment, when he does that, he has laid aside his position as Pharaoh's daughter. He has made his decision. He has thrown his life in, thrown his lot in with the Hebrew people. His time in Egypt as uh, Pharaoh's grandson is over at that point. And he has now associated himself with the people of God, choosing the fate of a slave over the treasures of Egypt and the pleasures of sin. Right? Think about this for a moment. He's the grandson of Pharaoh. Right, these, these men were seen as gods. They had untold, unspeakable riches. Right, you think that the Elon Musk and the Bill Gates and the Warren Buffetts of the world are rich? It is nothing compared to the wealth of these Egyptian pharaohs. Right, if you do the like adjusted for inflation, these, these, are, these are trillionaires. He had everything he wanted, anything he wanted, laying at his feet, a life of ease. Nothing would have been kept from him. Power, prestige, gold, untold riches, they were all his. Pharaoh and his family owned everything. It was all, and all of it belonged to them. And yet it says, Moses chose to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now, when it says the fleeting pleasures of sin, what is it referring to? I don't think it's referring to some particular set of sins, some kind of hedonistic debauchery that the Egyptians participated in, though that was certainly true, that that would have certainly been a part of that culture, and Moses would have certainly had access to that. It seems instead that these fleeting pleasures of sin simply means this, what, what it would have meant for Moses to reject connecting himself to the people of God, to reject God and to join himself to Pharaoh for the rest of his life, right? That act of sin to refuse to become a part of people of God and to, yes, live a life of sin there in that context. And what's fascinating is that this says... It says that he chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. The fleeting pleasures of sin. And when we hear the word fleeting, we think temporary, short term, right? A day or two. But look, here's the reality. When it says that he refused the the fleeting pleasures of sin, it means he gave up a lifetime of the pleasures of sin. It's only fleeting when compared to eternity. Right? This is where we're getting at this, this eternal perspective. 
Right? Do you see that in verse 26? Moses, it says he, he considered these things. Verse 26, he, he considered the reproach of Christ, suffering like Jesus suffered, right? He considered that. He looked at that. He gazed at that. He studied it. He meditated on it. He considered this. He considered the reproach of Christ, meaning suffering in the way Christ did, in similar ways. And he considered that to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. He looked at the situation and he made a calculation that being considered a common slave among the Hebrew people, the people of God, would lead to a greater reward than being the grandson of Pharaoh. How in the world do you come to that conclusion? How in the world do you come to the conclusion that it is a greater wealth and greater reward to join yourself with a group of slaves who own nothing than to give up everything? Everything would have belonged to him. And yet he said, joining himself to the people of God is greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. How does he come to that conclusion? How does that equation work out that way? Well, what does it say at the end of verse 26? He was looking to the reward. He was looking to the reward. He knew that our eternal inheritance, the inheritance that God has for all of his people, is of far more value than anything we may give up in this life. And it's worth enduring any amount of suffering this life might throw at us. We find this throughout the New Testament. Let me reference two or three spots. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to the things that are seen, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, they're passing, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This light momentary affliction, when Paul used the word light momentary affliction, he meant Paul's life, it meant being stoned to the point of death. It meant being beaten and left for dead and shipwrecked and exposed and at the edge of death multiple times over. But all of that is a light, momentary affliction. Preparing him for a weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's beyond comparison. You try to compare it to the treasures of Egypt, it's beyond even trying to compare it, is what Paul says. And in fact, I love what he says in uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 16 to 18. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him, now listen to this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is be, to be revealed to us. Right? It's not even worth comparing. It's like Paul says, if you have a scale and you're going to pile up all the what-if questions on this side and you have the eternal weight of glory on this side, he says, don't even bother to put the weight, what if questions on the scale. It's not worth comparing. It so infinitely exceeds anything you can imagine. Don't even bother to compare it. It's beyond comparison. It is an eternal weight of glory. I mean, what does Romans 8 say? It says you're going to be a fellow heir with Christ. And I've said this probably three dozen times in the life of our church, but if that wasn't in the Bible and you told me that we were going to be heirs with Christ, I would call you a blasphemer. Right? It is unthinkable, unthinkably glorious, right? That you and I, sinners, enemies of God, who were born as children of wrath and deserve nothing but God's wrath, that God sent Christ to die in our place, to take on the wrath that we deserve in our place, fully forgive us, give us his righteousness, and make us co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Which is why Paul says in the passage we worked on memorizing over the last few weeks in our church, Philippians 3, 7, and 8. 
But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as what? Rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ. You see, here's the struggle for Christians. We measure our lives in years. But if we're going to live the way God is calling us to live, we have to start measuring our life in eternity. We have to measure our life in infinities. Our riches cannot be measured in dollars or whatever currency we come up with 50 years from now, Bitcoin, doggy coin, whatever you want to call it, right? It can't be measured in any of that, right? It's, it's, it's beyond comparison. The eternal rewards that the Father is ready and willing and wanting in his grace and mercy to us to pour out on us. And when we live this way, it changes us and gives us an eternal perspective, just listen to these words from David Livingstone. Livingstone was an explorer in the uh, 1800s in Africa, but he was also a missionary. Part of his reason for wanting to explore Africa was to pave the way for the mission's effort to come behind him to reach these unreached peoples of Africa. And in fact, as he was exploring, he witnessed the horrors of the East Africa slave trade, and he became committed to uh, the abolition of the slave trade and worked for it. But later in his life, in 1857, he spoke to the students of Cambridge University by the way, I can't imagine Cambridge inviting a guy like this to speak today. It's a different Cambridge University in those days. But David Livingston spoke, reflecting on his life, on his years of exploring Africa, paving the way for future missions. And this is what he said. This is a lengthy quote, but I want to read all of it. Quote, For my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I've made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward and healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather it is a privilege anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with the foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are as nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. I never made a sacrifice. You see, this is the eternal perspective God is calling us to have in this passage. That even if we have to give up everything, even if like the Hebrews and that we read about in chapter 10, even if our property is plundered because we chose to associate with those who were in prison, even if that happens to us, we can stand at the end of days with the riches of eternity poured out on us because of the finished work of Jesus Christ and say, I didn't make a sacrifice. I gained a reward. That's the perspective that God is calling us to have. So if we're going to have faith that pushes us toward radical obedience, we have to have faith that has an eternal perspective. But we also, number three, have to have faith that looks to the unseen. Look at verse 27. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So this is referring to when Moses had to flee away from Egypt. There's some debate about whether it's him fleeing when uh, it's found out that he murdered the Egyptian man or whether it's later referring to him leaving with God's people during the Exodus. But 
It seems pretty clear throughout chapter 11 that the author of Hebrews wants to maintain this chronological ordering of what happens. And so because of that, I would lean strongly toward it's referring to when uh, Moses left Egypt after it was discovered that he had killed the Egyptian man. It says, and now that the trouble with that view, however, admittedly, is that Exodus chapter 2 says when it was discovered that he had killed the Egyptian, it says Moses was afraid. It says he became afraid. But I think that was a temporary passing fear. And in the end, Pharaoh decided that he wanted to kill Moses for what he had done. And so Moses flees. He, he leaves Egypt behind. He goes. And ultimately, he's not afraid of the anger of Pharaoh. He's not afraid of what Pharaoh may do to him for turning his back on this kingdom. And he leaves and he goes and he's away for 40 years before he eventually returns to rescue, by God's grace, God's people from Egypt. But what I want you to see in verse 27 is the last half, is that the faith that allowed him to, to leave Egypt and to not ultimately, ultimately to not be afraid of the anger of the king is that he endured seeing him who is invisible. You see the two key words there, he endured and invisible. That's exactly what the author of Hebrews had said to us earlier in chapter 10, that we have need of endurance, that we have to look to the unseen things. And so Moses has every confidence because he is looking to that which cannot be seen. He is trusting God's sovereign protection over him. We saw this earlier when we referenced the reward waiting for us. We have to look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen if we're going to endure by faith. And then finally, just quickly, I want us to see this fourth principle that faith sets apart the people of God. Verses 28 through 31. We're going to go into much greater detail about verses 28 to 31 next week. But what I want you to see is just this big picture theme that develops in, in verses 28 through 31 with each of these individual acts of faith. Verse 28, by faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. It, it distinguished between the people of God and the people of Egypt. Verse 29, by faith the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Again, distinguishes between the people of God who made it safely across and the Egyptians who, when they tried to do it, were drowned in the sea. Verse 30, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been circled for seven days. Again, there's a distinction between the people who were outside the walls and the people inside the walls. And then verse 31, by faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. This act of faith separated her from those who were disobedient. She was distinct and separated from other people. Now, as I said, we're going to take these one at a time next week and look, look at them in much, much more detail. But what I want you to see is that when we act on the faith that God has given us, we are going to look different than the world around us. That true faith, saving faith, is going to result in actions that we take that set us apart from the rest of the world. Faithful obedience will always look strange to the world around us. And ultimately, faith that is not joined to action is something less than the faith being described in Hebrews chapter 11. And so I just want to leave us with Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now listen to this. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Faith leads us to the good works that God has prepared for us. It's going to set us apart from the world around us. And we are empowered to do it by fixing our gaze on what verse 7 points out of Ephesians 2. That in the coming ages, he is going to show us and pour out on us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It is a staggering thought that he, uh, Ephesians chapter 2 says to us that God saved you, you child who were by nature a, a child of wrath like the rest of mankind and that he saved you and gave life to your dead soul so that he could glorify himself by pouring out immeasurable riches on you for all eternity and when we fix our gaze on those eternal things it empowers us by god's grace to not throw away our confidence so that we can endure by faith even if our circumstances here never change, we know that one day for all eternity is going to change. And so our hope is in eternity where we will spend forever in the presence of Jesus Christ filled with joy and satisfaction. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good gifts that you have poured out on us, the the gifts of your mercy and grace that are undeserved. Father, I think we can all confess that we can barely understand the truths that are captured in a passage like this. What it really means to look to the reward, what it really means to fix our minds on eternal things, what it means to be free, to live a life free from fear of man. But Father, I pray that you would accomplish these things in every single person in this room. That you would get glory for yourself through our lives by giving us the faith that frees us from fear of man so that we can live in radical obedience to you, not worried about what man can do to us. That you would give us the, find, the kind of faith that has an eternal perspective, that looks to the reward that you're going to pour out on us through uh, that was purchased for us through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Father, I pray that in this life, you would give us faith to see the unseen, Father, to live with confidence that you are at work, even when we maybe can't see it or feel it or know it, that we know you're faithful to your promises. And Father, as we do those things, I pray that you would give us the kind of faith that moves into action and that in our faith, we would be set apart from the world as we seek obedience to you. May you accomplish all of these things in our lives for our good, but ultimately for your glory. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.